Podcast One production. Punchy. Whacked. Power. Influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> episode we're talking to Nicolette Rubenstein. Nicolette is a non-executive director at Unisuper, SuperEd and the Actuaries Institute and that's because she is in fact an actuary which is a profession that doesn't have quite as many women in as, as it possibly should. She's also got an MBA from the AGSM and she's a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Quite a considerable CV. Yeah, enormous and also a real interest in superannuation and real expertise, which it's wonderful to know because women have been so ignored in terms of superannuation policy and that has led to such dire consequences for so many women of our generation, Catherine, as they reach retirement age and have nothing. So it's wonderful to have somebody who knows about it and who understands the, the dire straits that so many older women are finding themselves in. It's also fantastic that uh, Nicolette is such a role model uh, in the area that she's in and really loves encouraging women to think about careers in the STEM area. So fantastic to have her here. Nicolette, you are a well-known expert on superannuation and there's a lot of talk about how super isn't working, particularly for women, what do you think we could do to make it fairer? That is a big question, Jane. So, uh, but one that I've thought a lot about, you know, there's a lot of stats about women, you know, we're retiring on 40% less super. But the, the one stat that really gets to me is that nearly 40% of women, single women in retirement are living below the poverty line. Mm. So, I personally am not in favour of a whole load of tweaks to the superannuation system to fix the problem. I, I'd much rather fix the foundations. And I, I think the foundations firstly roll back to when we're actually working, that we're, you know, the gender pay gap, we're spending six years on average out of the workforce. Uh, and even when we go back to work, we're often working part time. So, you know, I'd rather fix the fundamentals by fixing the gender pay gap. I think flexible working, I'm a big, passionate believer in flexible working. Uh, is a key part of the solution. And if we can encourage women back into the workforce so that they can earn the money so they can save for the retirement, then I think we will go a long way. But before that, I actually, you know, one of the big chunks of the gender pay gap itself is that we're working in lower paid occupations and industries in the first place. And I I did a piece of work when I took over as president of the Actuaries Institute looking at the gender diversity in actuaries and trying to work out why are only 25% of our fellows, which is our highest qualification, female. And I rolled it back to university and about a third of the kids at university studying actuarial are female. And then I rolled it all the way back to school and looked at the percentage of kids studying advanced and extension maths at school. And amazingly, only a third are girls. Then I looked at, well, why is that? Why, if girls are equally capable at maths, why are, you know, so few doing extension and advanced maths, which is where actuaries sort of draw their talent from? And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a confidence thing going on there that girls are less confident than boys in their maths ability. But the big thing is, is just gender stereotyping, that even from a very young age, we are encouraging our boys to study maths and, and not our girls. And I realise that that's a cultural phenomenon that different countries around the world actually equally encourage their girls. Mm. You know, China is a, is a good example. So, 
you know, when when we talk about this issue of women in in retirement and poverty, I I feel like we've got to roll it right back in a, you know, that fundamental issue is, is gender stereotyping and we're still doing it. The other thing about the teaching of maths and, and so on, I um, absolutely hear you, but Nicola, one of the things that's often not mentioned, and there's been great studies done on this, girls are taught differently. So it's not just their lack of, they're not getting a response, they're not getting encouragement, they're taught differently. So an academic at Macquarie University looked at how young girls, eight to 10, were taught science. And they, the teachers, quite unwittingly, male and female teachers, were teaching young girls differently and made an assumption that they wouldn't be interested. It was very, very interesting. So that's, again, reflecting and not having a go mm. at them, reflecting social norms. So, you know, they're not being encouraged. And stereotyping. And stereotyping. Still, you know, even yeah. the teachers. And there's been a lot of studies on teachers who... You know, inadvertently, they're not doing it on purpose, but they they are. And there's issues with, you know, quality of mass teachers. We don't have enough of them. We don't, I think, particularly in some of the girls' schools, we don't have good quality mass teachers. So, and, you know, a lot of the teachers themselves will, will say that, that we, you know, there's some amazing statistic that 30% of mass teachers at school were not actually qualified Tra- yeah, as yeah, mass yeah. teachers. They're so. not trained in mass. And that's because we don't pay teachers enough. And if you're very highly trained in maths, you can earn a lot more money elsewhere. In financial services. Correct, yeah. exactly. Well, so can I it's just again, on that? Because yeah. I, I, I thought, oh, well, that's an easy problem to solve. Economics 101, demand, supply, imbalance. You you know, if you need to increase supply, you you, you know, you, you increase the price. You need to pay the maths teachers more. But in, interestingly, the teachers that I've spoken to, that is, uh, you know, gosh, you could a terrible do that. thing to to suggest that one type of teacher would be paid different from another. We need to pay all teachers more because one of the reasons you were talking about how women tend to work in cluster in lower paid occupations, and it's really interesting. Look at what looking at what those occupations are because sixty percent of us, I believe work in a industry that's dominated by one gender or the other. And if it's dominated by men, this will shock you. It's higher paid than if it's dominated by women. And teaching education is dominated by women. So it's generally lower paid. And the problem is if you paid maths teachers more, they would all be men. They would earn more in education and the women would be even, there'd be a gender pay gap created. It's so bizarre. And we know from bigger, massive studies in the US, the UK and in Australia, in fact, that when a sector becomes feminised, the and pay goes down. The pay goes down. It's a very interesting thing. No, Ooh, very well one. validated, um, um, yeah. particularly in the US. I've looked at this in quite a lot of detail. And they've had some sectors that you wouldn't expect park rangers, who would have thought, became feminised. Now, there were a whole lot of reasons for that. The salaries went down. In Russia. And when it becomes masculinised, which happened actually in the IT, early days of the IT sector, there were a lot of women employed. Um, but gradually over time it changed and the salaries went up when there were more men. It's quite bizarre. And also talking about the stereotypes, one of the things I think we forget is how we still regard caring as women's work, which is why we take time out of the workforce and blah, 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 blah. But it's also why we don't think the science and maths are useful because they're hard-edged. You know, they're about numbers, not people. So this whole idea that women are naturally the nurturers leads all the way through our lives as us being in a way almost discouraged, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. So did you always love maths? Mm. Were you a, a, a yeah, maths how did you, how did you escape the stereotype? <laughs> well, I've, I've got a good story about that, actually, <laughs> got- because I did always like maths. And maths, interestingly, 
I wasn't good at everything. I had a definite bent towards being better at maths than than definitely the English side. And I'm very conscious that I'm talking to two people who would be considered more Englishy than yes, right. <laughs> possibly Straight maths. humanity stereotypes here. Uh, anyway, at age 16, I was actually, I grew up in England, but I went to high school in Durban in South Africa. And at 16, I didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom sent me to a guidance counsellor. The guidance counsellor said to me, what do you like? Uh, I said maths. And she seemingly opened this little pocketbook of careers on the letter A and said, what about actuary? She read me out a short description, kind of probability theory, economics, well-respected, well-paid. I said, fantastic. That sounds just perfect for me. And literally on the basis of uh, you know, just less than five minutes of, of advice, I said about this unbelievable trajectory, which is really, really hard to qualify as an actuary. And, you know, actually, it was the best advice I ever, ever got. For a long time, I actually thought, wasn't that a bit negligent to to know so little about a child and set them off, you know, like that? And then a few years ago, I was at a superannuation conference. And I was at a dinner and there was a lady on the table who I could hear had a South African accent and it turned out she was from Durban and amazingly, she was from the same school as me. So I said to her, uh, I told her my career guidance counsellor story and uh, she said, you'll never guess what, I went to the same counsellor and she told me to be an actuary. (laughs) So uh, from then on, I just, you know, withdrew all of those accusations of being negligent and I thought that woman was a trailblazer. She was in deepest, darkest Africa in the 80s, she was encouraging women into STEM subjects. So it doesn't matter who walked through the door. <laughs> you're good at English, you be an, be an actuary. actuary. Yeah. You're, you're, you're great at art. Actuarial <laughs> studies is for you. Yeah. The actuarial profession. Because <laughs> it is quite a specialised area, isn't it? I mean, it's not something that, I mean, a lot of people will actually say, what does an actuary do? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it is a specialised area. And I answer that question now with, you know, we look at any future financial uncertainty. It, it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's super superannuation or life insurance or climate change impacting, you know, flood insurance, you know, anything to do with future financial uncertainty is what we look at. And it's it's actually a great career for women. <laughs> Might as well give it a plug. I mean, I've, you know, because there is a short supply of women, you know, particularly women who can combine that sort of mathematical and analytical side with just a little bit of communication skills, you know, you, you, you can go a long way. Isn't it interesting, though, just talking about that guidance counsellor who was a you know, secret revolutionary. But it was just one person suggesting and opening a little door for you. It wasn't you had to go to a whole course, all your teachers had to be feminists, you know, blah, 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 that it only takes a little tiny nudge in a less traditional direction. Yeah, yeah. and I reflect on the rest of the pieces of that puzzle, which was I went home and I said, Mum, Dad, I'm going to become an actuary. And my mum, my parents had heard of it because my mum actually runs an insurance broking business. So, you know, she'd heard of, of actuaries because another possibility is I'd gone home and said, I'm going to be an actuary. And they said, you know, rubbish, you know. No daughter of mine is going on the stage, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I got a bit of support from home and, yeah. And I, I always reflect back on I feel strongly that it was good having a goal at that age, at least for me. And I, you know, now I've got my own daughter who's doing HSC this year and she probably doesn't know what she wants to do, but she's narrowed it down by talking about thinking through what she doesn't want to do. (laughs) So, you know, I think that's actually quite a valuable process. I don't want to do medicine. I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to care for people, you know, whatever it is. So, Is she good at maths too? 
it would not be her strong point. <laughs> <laughs> so she's reacting against. <laughs> she's, she loves English literature. No. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. No, nothing yeah. wrong. But no. it is a bit harder to get a job. Actually, I think she wants to go into business, but she really does love English literature. And my mother-in-law actually did a master's in English literature and lectured in English literature. So it's really interesting that that's sort of oh. manifesting in my my daughter as well. Okay. So, um, Nicola, you've got three? Three girls. Three yes. girls, haven't yes. you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. Um, I can endorse that. Configuration. <laughs> <laughs> We're a sun-free zone. Sun-free zone around the oh, table. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've got two daughters, Catherine's got three. Um, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about it. I really do not like too much emphasis when you're talking to women. How did you balance mm-hmm. uh, your paid yeah. non-paid work. Mm. It's not about balancing, but it is about finding ways that work for you. And I know it's an area of great interest to you. Yes. And you're yeah. a great believer in flexibility. Tell us a little bit about how all of that panned out and what you found worked for you. Yeah. And, you know, I ended up writing a book in this area, largely motivated because I found it so hard. But the the kind of foundation of that book is around flexible working. And, you know, I've now been working flexibly and part-time for the last 16 years. And so just in terms of how that started, I was 33 working at Colonial First State. I was general manager of strategy at the time, pregnant with my first child. And I knew I wanted to work part-time. It was an absolute uh, non-negotiable but I fully expected to have to give up my general manager role in order to work part-time. So I was absolutely amazed when uh, my boss at the time, the CEO, said that I could keep my job in because it was almost unheard of in CBA to have a part-time mm. general manager. And, and you know, still actually is quite rare, even, you know, 16 years later, that there are a lot more now, but it's still, you know, it's still a small proportion. So how I did it originally, I worked uh, seven in the morning till one o'clock. I came in every day. So I did half a day at work and half a day with my new baby girl. And that worked very well for me, actually. I feel like it was good from my boss's point of view as well. I was always there if anything urgent came up. And I've always believed this, that I'd rather have a few hours of every day with my child rather than some days when I'm with them the whole day and others not at all. (laughs) It works both ways. Anyway, so I did that for about eight years, that seven till one arrangement. And then I took over a big program, like a $40 million program focused on retirement, actually. And I gradually increased my hours to about more than 40 hours a week, but working flexibly. So I was trying to pick up the kids from school three days a week was my benchmark that I was aiming for, and then catch up on the work uh, in the evenings and the weekends. And I did that for about four years. And that was tough. I was going to um, say, that's, uh, that's yeah. hard. So I don't, I'm not sure that I could have kept that up longer than the four years that I did that. I mean, I loved the job that I was doing. I was grateful for the job. I was, it was fantastic. But, it, I, I, you know, it, it was in the process of burning me out quite quickly. And then I left CBA to start a career as a non-executive director. My first position was Unisuper. And since then, I've still been working flexibly. And that the irony is it's actually easier to do flexible work as a director than it is in an executive role. Mm-hmm. Because firstly, the only days that you have to do really a full day would usually be when you've got a board meeting. The other days you can largely do school hours and you can take on as many or as few board positions yeah. you as have you control want. Over you have them, more control. Don't you? And funny enough, in some ways, you have less stress because you're not managing people either. Mm.
think has changed for the better, particularly looking at workplaces, because we have seen some shifts. It's not quite at the level we'd like to see, but certainly more signs that men are taking flexible work options. Um, Again, it's fledgling, but we are hearing a bit more about that. So... You know, largely I see a lot of change happening. I mean, I see the CEOs more focused on gender diversity. I see training happening, you know, company-wide, you know, the unconscious bias. And, uh, you know, we can have a chat because I know, you know, there's issues with that as well. But there's attempts to train up everyone at least there's um, an awareness it exists. Yeah, yeah. that's new. Just <laughs> exactly. For a start. Yeah, there's targets being put in place. There's so I, I see a lot of positive, and and I personally have had a very positive experience in the work environment. I've I feel like I've had equal opportunity at one stage at CBA. My boss was female, and my boss's boss was female. So once you've kind of seen that light, you know you can see ah oh, I can see how this can work, but I am very aware that I'm a little bit Pollyanna-ish about this. And to be honest, your book. The Stop Fixing Women was a really good kind of wake-up call because I have, as part of writing the book, I, I then went into lots of workplaces to do little talks and presentations. And I the one thing that struck me is how variable it is. And you can get a sense about a company so quickly, even if you're just in there two hours, you can see how many direct reports that are female the, the CEO has I, I always ask them, you know, hands up how many people are working flexibly or part-time. I even ask how many people have got house husbands. You know, there's a there's a whole lot of gauges. And, you know, you can even see the openness of the discussion that they have. So, yeah, I, I've been struck by how variable it is. You can, you know, there's a whole lot of companies doing the right thing and there's a whole lot with a long so way. It's the luck of the draw of where you end up and what kind of boss you've got. And then also if the management changes... The attitudes can also change. Yeah. Hugely. Mm. Yes. And and often it's just, you know, it can be one extra person or, you know, man or woman, depending on their what their views are. And, you know, you see it, it can be one company but a different division. Even within a division, it depends on who your direct boss is. And and you know, we say it's the luck of the draw. And one of the things I've sort of advocated with young women is to try and kind of manage their career more proactively before they have children. Because by the time you have a child, you want to make sure you are in the right company, you know, right job. But most importantly, you've got the right boss who will support you. And I have now come across women who are much more proactively. I think they are. Mm. I think they're strategic. I think they they actually do a lot of due diligence um, and good on them. And they'll come up to me, and I'm sure this happens to you and to you, Nicolette, and say, oh, I was working at this company. It clearly wasn't going to had a word around, I've moved somewhere else, it's made a huge difference. Actually, it's interesting that whole thing about who the leader is and the commitment. The male champions of change at one point called it the leadership lottery. Mm-hmm. And I thought there, there was something in that. It's yeah. just, are yeah. you lucky enough to have someone who's committed? But it also tells us, doesn't it, it's nothing to do with output and results, which actually you would think business would be concentrating on. Um, it's about the mechanics of how we go about it. So we're going to get really touchy about this. We won't let people work flexibly, regardless of whether they're meeting their targets mm. or achieving what they're yeah. meant to achieve. I think lottery is a good way of putting it yeah. because when I when I think about what worked in my situation, a lot of it was luck, actually. You know, there's part of my own frame of mind, but I was in a company that, you know, this was way be- before flexible work policies, but they had supportive policies at least. I had a boss who was supportive and I had a job that I could do flexibly. I was strategy, so I didn't have a large team. So I do look at those component parts and think, yeah, there was there was a bit of luck, but 
actually in future you should get there by design, not, you know. But I still think it leads, because we still expect women to do the caring. You know, if we were having this conversation with a man in your position now in the workforce, we would not be asking him the kind of questions we're asking you about the, you know, balance, juggling, whatever you want to call it. And so there's still this idea that women have to sit down and plan around their caring responsibilities. It strikes me more and more that we're not going to get what we're all hoping to get, which is, you know, you, you have equality of opportunity regardless of your background until men step up and take on 50% of the caring responsibilities. I strongly, I, I strongly, strongly agree with that. And I, I mean, it's funny, I, I reflect on what is the optimal model. So given what, what we did, which was husband working full-time and me working part-time, what, me would too. You, yeah, me. what would you do if you had your time again? And I would, I think, both working something like the equivalent of four days a week is actually, particularly when the kids are young, would be the optimal model. Because on if you're both doing four days, that means your child is only in three days of care, which, you know, that means that more than half the week they're with a parent, which, you know, sort of on balance is a, a, a better outcome. And, you know, I think you can do most jobs in the equivalent of four days a week. So I actually think it works from a, a work point of view as well. Watching my daughter currently who's got two small children, husband working full-time, she's working part-time. So it's like repeating itself. It's the cost of childcare that actually makes that particularly hard to do unless both parties have very high-paying jobs because it's like about $24,000 a year to have, say, two kids. So that's why a lot of people are opting to only have one, two kids in childcare. And if you get to three... All bets are off. And I think it's also important that we, at the very least, register. We're talking from a fairly privileged point of oh, view. Yes. Um, so the structural change that you mentioned right at the beginning is absolutely essential. I mean, we know that women, mm. uh, lower skilled, lower paid women, are more likely to be working in casual jobs. They're at risk. They certainly can't even think about contributing to superannuation. I mean, you talk about, you talk to women in the Indigenous community, they'll laugh at you and say, superannuation? Have you looked at our um, mortality rates? Yeah. We don't I mean, get, that, we don't get is, old enough. <laughs> we don't even get old enough. And, yeah. and that's, I mean, that's tragic. But we've got to remember that we have to have structural change because the choices that we've all had, and you're quite right about the cost, of course, of childcare. But again, to even have that choice is something that for so many women, Good which reminder. is why it was so important for us to get our national paid parental leave plan up and running, finally, scheme, um, after so many years. So where would you like to see a shift um, on that kind of really broad brush structural uh, stage? You know, what what do you think would help all women? Well, you know, come back to the the, the caring. We, we have to set off from, you know, day one, on equal sharing of of caring uh, and household mm-hmm. responsibilities, and uh, you know, how do you bring about that change? But I I feel like paternity leave is the you know that's at the pointy end of that process. And if you can encourage your particular senior men to start taking paternity leave and meaningful amounts of it, not just a couple of weeks, but you know, the point when the father can look after the the baby for months on end is when you've really, you've set yourself up on a different trajectory. And, you know, in in Australia, we have less than 5% of our men taking paternity leave. You know, in parts of Scandinavia, it's closer to 50%. And I I, I think that's a, a, a real game changer. And I one of the nicest things I heard recently was actually in the EY actuarial area, they've had a spate of men 
taking paternity oh. leave. And interestingly, the catalyst was one of the senior, uh, one of the partners uh, Fantastic. taking paternity leave. and Setting the model. And you know, you know what was interesting about Scandinavia? Those paternity leave options were not being taken up by men, uh, certainly in places like Sweden, I know that was the case, and I suspect Norway as well, until they brought them in as a use-it-or-lose-it provision. And I think there's something we can learn from that. So men were reluctant for exactly the same reasons that a lot of men are reluctant here, and I'm Mm -hmm. certainly not judging them for that. They don't want to be seen as not taking their careers seriously. They're worried about their job tenure and so on. But once it was a use it or lose it provision, they did start to take yeah, the leave, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is I mean, really One thing I'd be interested from you, Catherine, I've read that in Australia, you know, I've actually there was a stat and it's from a long time ago, but which actually showed that in terms of how much uh, men help out with household tasks, that Australia is one of the worst. Yep. Yeah. And it's a bit of a reflection in Australia. This is, was a bit of a theory that I read that that the women prefer quite macho men, whereas in Scandinavia the women... I'm not sure how much choice we've got. <laughs> <laughs> in Scandinavia the women are more attracted to men who will help, men will, who will do their part, men who... Uh, yeah, so I'm interested. Have you, have you ever seen any theories, either of you, actually, on that? And, uh, and what do you except think? That, uh, except that uh, you're quite right about the equation of who does most uh, unpaid and caring work. That is definitely two-thirds of that is done by women. Mm. And that statistic is virtually unchanged over decades. 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 I, it, doubled, it doubled from two hours a week to four hours a week about 15 years ago and hasn't moved since. And, you know, for when men. you say... Yeah, for men. Yeah. And when you say doubled, you think, oh, wow, but no, it's gone from virtually nothing to yeah. <laughs> hardly <laughs> anything. Double, double <laughs> virtually nothing. nothing. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to be a huge barrier. I mean, my hesitation about it's women in Australia are attracted to is I think, again, then we put the onus on women yeah. to stop change. Fixing women. Yeah, yeah. Stop fixing women. <laughs> it's your fault. And yeah. I think that actually this is a whole of society thing and it's got to do with, I've always hated the phrase, and I'm, I know you have too, Catherine, work-life balance because that assumes that work is somehow separate from, almost superior to life. And yet what surely everyone's looking for is a life where your work is intertwined with all, and your work, you've got paid work, you've got domestic work, you've got caring work, and you've also got leisure and you've got family and you've got friends and, you know, all of that, that it shouldn't be separated out into chunks but actually yeah. part of a whole. I really believe that. And I, I feel like my work isn't work. I mean, a lot of my work I would happily do if I wasn't paid. I, I Tell us know. about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did just want to mention with that, though, and I agree uh, with what Jane just said, you know, I mean, it's about social norms, isn't mm, it, and what's mm. considered desirable and so on. It's, you know, complicated. However, we do know the male breadwinner model is particularly embedded in Australia. So that's a very traditional, if you like, a 1950s model. The man goes out to work. Uh, into the world and brings home the money and the woman stays at home and does the disproportionate amount of caring. Now, that's that's propped up by things like the tax system, mm. uh, the cost of childcare, a whole lot of things, really tangible things. It's not just because women or indeed men prefer those very traditional stereotypes. It's actually propped up by a whole lot of things that do need to change and luckily are changing. And I certainly think just from uh, anecdotal uh, experience of seeing men pushing prams, out with little babies in slings, you know. And it is changing. That is changing. Yeah. That yeah. is definitely yeah. changing and it's great to see that. But it, 
needs to go a lot further. Yeah. Yeah. But to come back to Jane's example about your daughter, mm. you know, reliving mm. the cycle. Again. And for as long as the women go into the lower paid jobs, when you have that baby, it's just a pure financial decision, whoever's on oh, the higher right. salary. And I, I come back to this, you know, why we do need to encourage, the, you know, the girls who are showing any capability in the STEM area, we do we need to encourage that because that is where they will get the higher salaries and where it will become, you know, less of a financially driven because they will be earning equal amounts. We also need to relook really at what work we value and why we put very high value on some work and very low value on others. And it is really interesting that women are concentrated in caring roles, whether it be teaching, nursing, childcare, aged care, all those kinds of things. And those are the jobs we put little value on. And yet without them, the entire society would fall apart. Yet we will pay exorbitant amounts for jobs that actually, if somebody stopped doing it, it's also really important, and Nicolette, you're such a wonderful example of this, not only having women um, in areas like financial, the, the whole financial services area, which is enormously powerful, enormously, um, and has such an impact on all our lives, but also to have women around those decision-making tables. Oh, yeah. So I often think there's this false sort of trade-off, oh, we concentrate too much about getting women onto boards or into senior roles. I think we do all of that. We must have women around the table. Don't you agree? Otherwise, the decisions that are made completely leave well, us Well, have out. a look at super. It, there, were, there were not enough women having input into how women's lives were very different from men's when it was first developed. Yeah. I, I do feel strongly about the, you know, not just on boards, but around management tables. And I do subscribe to the view that you need two or more, you know, ideally three around the table. I've been in the situation where there's just one and you, you are a lone voice. And, you know... We also need women, I believe, who will embrace their femininity and, you know, I, I do subscribe to the view that on boards, you know, people with low ego, high intellect are the best people around the table uh, and to the extent that women can bring more of that skill set, uh, that's a good thing. But also compassion, you know, that just the ability to be comfortable uh, exercising compassion, I think is a great trait that women can bring around the table. And I you know, I, I think now it's interesting in the light of climate change and, you know, anti-plastics, you know, I think we've seen some great examples of have it where having women around the table can, you know, lead to much more progressive policies from companies that might otherwise be, you know, labelled as backwards or, or you know, in industries that aren't going anywhere. But they... I think I think women are having an impact around the board table. Mm. And just finally, I, I wonder if uh, we've, we've talked about this on and off during the, our entire conversation, but if a young woman does approach you, possibly not your eldest daughter, but as somebody who has a real, you know, possible interest in math, science and what have you, what do you think is the most encouraging thing you can say? Clearly as a role model, um, you're there, you're showing her it's possible. What else do you say? As I said, I, I think having a goal and just doing that. You know, I, in the end, only spent about six years working as a proper actuary and I moved out into strategy, product development, a bit of marketing. So, you know, just sort of uh, give it a go. I, I, the advice I often give is is pick the right company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and now it's funny, maybe because I'm close to financial services, I'm close to a lot of the consulting firms, but I, I know which ones are really trying to make a difference and, and which ones are not, not doing much. So I, I think that, and I, and I do, I think you've got to be strategic about your which career you, you choose as well. And 
you know, quite controversially, the one thing I've encouraged my kids not to do is law. Mm. And, you know, it's going to be the most disrupted profession. Arguably, my eldest daughter would be really well suited <laughs> to it in so many ways. But I see a demand supply imbalance of lawyers. I see a career as a lawyer in one of the law firms as very tough. I, I see that a lot of the other consulting firms having done a lot more on gender diversity than some of the law firms. And that's a mass generalisation. But I feel like I got a lot out of my education. So, you know, I qualified as an actuary and then I went back a few years later and did an MBA as well. And I, you know, I think that set me up really well, interestingly, in a man's world. I felt like I got instant credibility around Mm. the board table, around the management table uh, from that. So I do think investing in your education is still a good way to go. Getting a, a, a wonderful career advisor from Durban. That's well, right. I, I was just thinking about. I would have thought you'd just say, "I'd be an actuary." Uh, worked for me, but I think too, the very fact that you do what you do, that you are who you are, that you have three daughters. You know, you've done you you in a way just by doing it. You are encouraging, passing on courage to other young women. Looking at, is it possible? Can it be done? Yes, and, and but it's funny. Catherine's told me about. In fact, I think it's in your book about. What we don't need is these women who are making the impossible seem possible. Oh, yes, that's right. And, you know, putting them out on it. So, you know, that my also I go to my utmost to, you know, explain all of the impossible bits and the dramas and the, you know, the things that haven't worked out so well that I think the last thing we need to do is hold people out on a pedestal when they look like they've got it all together because invariably okay, they haven't. Okay, what didn't work out so well? <laughs> yes, <laughs> question there. I can tell you we have lots of arguments. My children are not perfect. <laughs> well, I don't know where to start on that list. but You've got teenagers? Teenagers. Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, you just think, I, you know, I try to think what, what are my worst mornings and it will be a morning when someone feels sick and doesn't want to go to work. I've got a presentation coming up. I'm not prepared for it. I need to rehearse it once more, but they're demanding your attention. You know, that, that is when you're, the steam just starts coming out of, your, uh, out of your ears going, oh, my God, what am I doing? Oh, Being well. human. Yeah. Being human, living life. No such thing as superstars. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much, Nicolette. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. <laughs> Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 